morning on the occasion of the ordination and installation of new church officers, I did not find it necessary at all to step out of the series that we're in because much that we are reading in the book of Jude applies to uh, church officers. They, above all church members, are to be diligent to contend for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. And so it seems fitting to me on this occasion that we would just simply continue to look at these verses this morning, verses 11 through 13 of Jude, one chapter, verses 11 through 13. You'll find that on page 1216 of your pew Bible. We do ask and encourage you to have a Bible open as you listen to and follow along in God's word. As we make our way through this uh, really most important book, though small and often overlooked, we are seeing, by God's grace, the importance of uh, saints keeping guard over that holy deposit which God himself has committed unto his church, namely the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, or as Jude refers to it here, the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. And yet even as we seek to guard it well, As we read through the book of Jude, and I'm sure you've been struck by this, it's hard to imagine how it was possible for such wicked and evil uh, false teachers to creep into the church and to be unnoticed by those who were part of it. They appeared to be something that they were not, and they appeared to have fooled many people. As Jude describes these men, we find it hard to believe again that they could have so easily slipped in unnoticed. Weren't they obvious to many? Didn't they stand out in so many ways? Well, the answer, of course, that Jude's telling us is no, they didn't. They weren't that obvious. Appearances were certainly deceptive. I've recently begun to be interested in where our most common sayings come from. We hear a lot of sayings every day, statements that we take for granted, And I'm interested now in looking them up and where we actually uh, have them originating in history. I checked this one out this week, the sermon title, Things Are Not Always What They Seem, and I found it to be a very old statement, originally, so some say, most say, spoken first by a Roman poet, Phaedrus, who died in 50 AD. That means he lived during the years of our Savior's earthly ministry. He wrote this, things are not always what they seem. He was the first one to say it in this way. The first appearance deceives many. The intelligence of a few perceives what has been carefully hidden. I think this statement very accurately represents and captures what Jude is writing about in this brief letter. He is reminding these believers to be not so easily deceived by appearances but to measure all things by the revelation of God in that body of truth that he has committed to them, once for all delivered unto the saints the very word of God. I found it interesting, again, that he lived in Jesus' day because Jesus often spoke of this principle or concept about appearances being deceiving, things not appearing to be what they look like. Jesus pointed this truth out in remarkable ways in his own earthly ministry warning his disciples and those who heard him to beware of those who appear to be one thing but are actually something very different. You remember his words. They are startling words in Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets, he says, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them, that is, these ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing, by their fruits. You will know them, be able to judge and discern them by their fruits. Now that is as important today as it was in Jude's day, and that's exactly what Jude is doing in these verses this morning. He's uncovering for us really the fruits of their work and labors, of their teaching. He's exposing the fruits of these false teachers, but he's going even further in these verses. He's also uncovering the motives of these false teachers. What is it that drives them? And so we'll listen to these verses as I ask you to stand, as is our practice as we read God's word. Jude chapter Uh, Jude 1, of course, but verses 11 through 13. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. And wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Thus far the reading of God's word. All flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, bless your word now, which indeed stands forever against all false teachers, against all those who would seek to destroy it. Your church will always exist, will always prevail, and we rejoice in these promises. And pray now that the Spirit would take the word and bless it to our hearts, our hearing, our understanding, so that we might be built up and strengthened in this, our most holy faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we looked briefly at the previous verses, 8 through 10. We saw how Jude wanted to unmask these false teachers to take the covering off, if you will. Again, he goes deeper this week, these dreamers who he says... Defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. He now wants to show us what makes them tick, what directs them, what guides them, what were their motivations, what drives them to do what they do. And then added to that again, he shows and reveals the fruit of their ministry so that according to Jesus, we might know that they are false teachers because all they bring is destruction. That's all that Jude says that they will bring is ultimate destruction. They are ordained for such destruction. And so he warns us, as he has all throughout this letter so far. So let's look briefly this morning with a mind to all that will be happening in just a few moments from now as we ordain and install these men. But let's look at these verses first. First note in verse 11 that he begins with a woe. This is a significant word. It's one that we're familiar with if we read the Old and New Testament. God himself through the prophets has pronounced many woes. Uh, 
It is a statement of covenantal judgment. It is a statement of God's curse, if you will, upon those to whom he speaks it. Jesus spoke it many times as he judged the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23 contains no less than seven woes that he speaks against the scribes and Pharisees of his day. He warned them, his disciples, of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. He warned them that they were false teachers. It's what Jude is doing here. And when he pronounces this woe, he is assigning them to the same destruction that God did in the Old Testament that Jesus does in the New Testament because they are false teachers worthy of such destruction. And so beginning this way is significant. He's giving us a sense of the ultimate uh, character of these men. They are deserving of this covenantal curse. And so he pronounces it against them in verse 11. But then he adds this view to their motivations. And that's really what I think is in view here as you look at verses, uh, or really verse 11, where we see this. The three examples again, notice the three, Jude uses them throughout. Three well-worn paths or examples of sin illustrated from the Old Testament that give us insight into the character of these false teachers and their motives. Notice in order how he begins. They walked, first of all, in the way of Cain. They walked in the way of Cain. Uh, The idea of walking in something in the New Testament especially, in places like 1 John as well as here in Jude, is the idea of a pattern of life. They are living in this way. They're walking in it. It is a well-worn path for them. What is the way of Cain? Well, we know the story from Genesis 4. Cain and Abel were brothers. Cain, in God's providence, would become the first murderer ever of the Bible. And he was motivated, we know, by envy, which led then eventually to the murder of his brother. We know that only from the story itself in Genesis, as God clearly had instructed Adam and Eve and their children after them as to how he is to be approached as a holy God, Cain decided in his own wisdom to approach God differently. Abel decided to submit himself by the grace of God and to what God had required. In 1 John 3, chapter 3, verse 12, we should not be like Cain, John writes, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. There's a sense in which Cain was absolutely, as he says earlier, rejecting the authority of God here. He refused to obey God. But he was also envious of Abel, Abel's willingness to obey God because his deeds were righteous. And so the way of Cain is a motivation of envy, of jealousy against his brother, which leads then to all sorts of sins. And for Cain, it meant the murder of his brother. But that's not all about the motivations of these men. They abandoned themselves, secondly, for the sake of gain, to Balaam's error. Now, you need to read the whole story of Balaam as you find it in the book of Numbers. But as you do, you know that Balaam was driven by greed that led to self-abandonment. We do not only see this in what Balaam did, and that is he was willing to be hired to pronounce a curse against Israel by Balak, against Israel as they were gathered in the plains there. God would not allow it, of course. Balaam couldn't pronounce a curse, but only a blessing. 
But it doesn't change the fact that Balaam was motivated and driven by his own greed. And this greed led to the fruit of his life, which was an abandonment of everything that was righteous and pleasing to God. We know that because of what happened after Balaam's curses were turned into blessings. The Bible tells us what Balaam went on to do. He told Balak that the way to get to these Israelites is to lead them into immorality and to the worship of idols. And that's exactly what we're told in Revelation chapter 2 as John writes to the church at Pergamum and Jesus speaks these words. I have a few things against you, he says. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. You see, the motivation here was greed that leads to the fruit of abandoning oneself to all kinds of wicked acts and motivations. And so you have jealousy or envy, you have greed in these verses, and then you have the ones who perished, he writes, in Korah's rebellion. All of these stories were well known to his readers. They would have understood every one of them. As one writer suggests, what Korah and Dathan and Abiram were doing was not merely desiring to overthrow Moses and Miriam and Aaron and their leadership as God had appointed them, but they wanted to overthrow God himself. That's really at the heart of what Korah wanted. He wanted to exalt himself, much like Satan did, above God, or at least to the very place of God. And so you have this envy and jealousy, you have greed, and then you have this rebellious heart, a rebellious heart of Korah in his rebellion against God. These, Jude says, are motivations which destroy. They reap ugly, bad fruit. These motivations are, of course, age-old motivations. They govern and guide sinners of every age, including our age. And the people today who would be characterized by Jude as false teachers are often driven by the same things. In fact, Paul knew that so well that in writing to Timothy and in writing to Titus, he warns them that the men who you appoint in churches are not to be those who are given to things like greed Greed for profit. That's an important mark of someone called to the office of, I would argue, either deacon or elder. That they're not to enter into it for any sort of greed and certainly not out of envy or jealousy or of any rebellious heart. These motivations will always destroy. That's what they're designed to do. Secondly, after we see the motivations... We see a description, as we did back in verse 8, of these men who were dreamers. Here now, Jude identifies them in this way. They are hidden reefs, according to the ESV, at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, and shepherds only feeding themselves. They are hidden reefs. Some versions have they are spots or blemishes in your love feasts. So Jude is building upon this revelation of their motives, and he's giving us a graphic description of who they are. And I think in many ways, this is the one that stands out to me the most. 
because the picture here is of men who have so crept into the church unnoticed that they're able to sit at the very feast, the love feast themselves, which were the places in which the Lord's Supper would have been celebrated. So this could be a reference directly to the Lord's Supper, which I think is certainly in view, or to the feast in which these suppers or this celebration of the Lord's Supper would have been um, enjoyed. But you see the picture, a place of such intimacy, a place of such influence. There they are as blemishes and spots or hidden reefs, which is a picture of uh, the reefs which are hidden on the shoreline that ships will often crash into. You see the picture of that. That's why we have lighthouses to warn them of those reefs. Reefs. That's the picture here. They're dangerous. They're in a very dangerous place. This is the place in a church of, of probably the most intimacy we have together as we commune with the Lord Jesus Christ and with one another at the Lord's table. This is what Peter writes uh, with regard to this, even more descriptive. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. They love being able to deceive people. I watched a a show recently uh, on uh, dangerous cults. It's an older show, but I was watching a a story about a branch of uh, Mormon church that had broken off. They became sort of the fundamentalists, I think, Mr. Jeffs is the man who's now in prison for the abuse that he waged against this group of people. But, but in his own words, someone said, in his own words, in his own diaries, he said, listen, if anybody in authority knew what I was getting away with, I would be arrested. That's his own words. There's a picture of what Peter's saying. They actually revel in their deceptions. They love being uh, in secret or hiding what they really are while they feast with you. They have eyes. Listen to the, uh, the defiling of the flesh here. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Here the emphasis, of course, is upon the purity, the holiness of that gathering and of that time as believers come together with faith in Christ to eat a meal together, to hear the teaching from God's word, and often again to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have similar pictures, to some degree at least, of what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as we give warning every time about those who gather for the Lord's Supper to examine themselves. There was confusion in the church at Corinth. There were men and women who were coming, seeking their own interests, eating before anyone else was gathered, out of greed and selfishness. Again, in other places, they are these hidden reefs which refer to something dangerous that a ship needs to avoid as it passes by the coast. The image is the same. The picture is clear. These are those that we ought not to tolerate or to be like. And there are two qualities he uses to identify them in this context. They feast with you without fear 
There is no fear of God among them. They usually come casually without thought. They did not and do not consider the depth of what they are doing. They have no thought of the holiness of God, nor of any of his other attributes. The warning we are to hear is clear. Not only are we not to come to the table this way, but we're to guard the table. The table is not a place to trifle trifle with a holy God. That's why we fence the table. That's why we do what we do every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But Jude also says they serve only themselves. That's all they care about is themselves. No concern for others. Selfish, self-seeking in all of their ways. They wanted only what they wanted. They feasted without others. They took for themselves and there was no concern for their neighbor. I think this reminds us very specifically of what the Old Testament prophets wrote, what the Lord spoke through them about the shepherds who were among his people in those days and that would reflect the shepherds like these among Jude and among so many others. You remember these words from Ezekiel 34, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. I think Jude has in mind the shepherds, the unfaithful shepherds of Ezekiel 34. I think he's thinking about those who were self-seeking in all of their work and labor, which is why what we do today is so important. The men whom God has called, set apart, whom you have chosen and voted for and who will be ordained and installed, we believe, are such men who are faithful shepherds, who are not self-seeking, who are not looking out for their own interests, but who have a sense and an awareness of the soberness of this office and of what God requires of them. And God goes on to say in Ezekiel 34, doesn't he? I will raise up a shepherd, he says. I will raise up a faithful shepherd. And we know who that is, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus is raising up faithful shepherds and under-shepherds, elders and deacons in his church to care for, to shepherd them, to do these things that these unfaithful shepherds were not doing. Well, what follows here? I think is one of the most beautiful sections of the book of Jude and really of the whole Bible. The beauty of the poetry here, the writing itself, the description of what Jude is highlighting are very, very beautiful and clear, but they are damning to these false teachers. And the third point here is that their appearance, by these verses, their appearance is deceptive. By that I simply mean They make great and many promises, but they never deliver. They can't. If you look at each of these pictures in order and then the whole of it, you see that there are promises made in each of them. But in each one, those promises fail to be fulfilled. Look at the first one. They're empty promises. They are clouds without water. Waterless clouds swept along by the winds. You know, when a cloud appears on a 
a sunny day where it's hot and the cloud appears dark and appears to be something that's going to bring relief. And when it doesn't, there is great disappointment. There is deception, we would say, even in our own minds. And Jude uses that image to describe these false teachers. They appear with the promise of watering the earth, but these men are simply blown about by the winds and provide no life-giving refreshment or nourishment. They are late autumn trees, twice dead and uprooted. They are fruitless trees. There's no fruit as ought to be expected in the late autumn. No life, no change. There's nothing in them which would give to others what they have need of in their moments of need. They are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. It's a graphic picture, isn't it? We live by the beach. If you've ever been to the beach, when you've seen this, you know it's pretty overwhelming. As you look at the beach, you stand on the shore, you look right and left as far as the eye can see, and all you see is this very ugly brown foam that's been stirred up by the sea. It's hard to even imagine going into the water when you see it. But it's there, and it's a picture, a graphic picture that Jude understood. It reflects the immorality of their ways. Notice what he says, the foam of their own shame washes up. That's the fruit of their labors and of their work. It's nothing but ugly foam, dirty foam at the water's edge. And then he says the fruit is also like the wandering stars. Some prefer planets here that should be set and fixed for navigation, for instance. That may be what Jude has in mind. It could mean shooting stars that Jude has in mind that just appear bright for a moment and then suddenly disappear. Whatever he has in mind, the idea is the same. They promise one thing. But they fail to deliver. They are always empty in their promises. Notice at the end of verse 13, there's a summary phrase which I think captures the whole of the picture. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. If you read Matthew Henry's commentary, I encourage you to always read his commentary, Calvin's or others, as you study through books of the Bible, but if you read Matthew Henry at this point, it almost appears that he just, by this point, he almost expresses a weariness of these descriptions of Jude. It becomes overwhelming. And this is what he says. As for the gloom of utter darkness, he's kind of finishing his thoughts, or the blackness of darkness forever, I shall only say that this terrible expression with all the horror it imports, belongs to false teachers truly, not slanderously so-called, who corrupt the word of God and betray the souls of men. If this will not make both ministers and people cautious, I know not what will. It's not the first time we see the judgment of God so clearly displayed in these verses As we've said from the beginning, it becomes a little bit overwhelming, as Matthew Henry even himself noted. But he's faithful to note that this stands as a warning, not only to those engaged in false teaching, but to all who would follow in their ways. 
What makes people fall for such things? Why didn't they recognize them? Well, they were cleverly hidden. They were disguised and masked in this day. And what Jude is doing, such a great blessing to the church by God's grace, is he's unmasking them. He's revealing down to their very motives of covetousness and greed, power and fame, autonomy, rebellious hearts, and the fruit of their labors, like these evidences or these pictures that we see in nature in the world around us that seem to promise one thing but fail always to deliver. These men, one writer says, cause spiritual shipwreck. That's the danger. They cause spiritual shipwreck. They mock the things of God. They bear no fruit or their fruit is bad. They seek the satisfaction of their own needs and urges and they are not the least bit concerned with the needs or circumstances of others unless they can use this as a means to exploit others. They may appear pious, even important, but in reality they are nothing and they are destined, destined for judgment. Jesus warned of these men. He warned his disciples. Jude certainly knew of that warning himself. And here he repeats it in this incredible way to remind his readers to be on the guard, to contend for the faith, to proclaim the gospel even to those who would distort and pervert the grace of God. Well, three things as we close and as we move to this important time of Uh, the ordination and installation of our new church officers. Three important things to say. There is here, as we've noted all throughout, a clear warning to those who are outside of Christ. You don't have to be a false teacher. You don't have to be one who perverts the grace of God. If you are outside of Jesus Christ, you are walking in these ways anyway. You are seeking your own way, not submitting yourself to the Lord. And so we have seen these warnings throughout our study, and it's here as well. There's, of course, a warning for us all to guard against false teachers. But there's another warning all throughout this study, and that is don't be like them and fall into the same condemnation as they will. That's the picture we have in these ways. If we're outside of Christ, we're walking in the way of Cain, though we've never committed murder. We're walking in the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, seeking to overthrow God and exalt ourselves as the place of all rule and authority in our own lives. And we're certainly, as Balaam did, seeking greedy uh, things for our own pleasures. Those are pictures and and marks of unbelievers in general. And the warning of Jude is, do not walk in their ways. See their end, for their end is clear, Jude says, and flee to Christ, who alone is able to save us from such things. That leads me, secondly, to an encouragement for those of us who are believers this morning. Many have said to me and to others who have preached through Jude, this is a rather depressing book. It's constant focus on these false teachers. 
Well, I contend that there are two main ways that we can glory in the wonder of the gospel message. The first way is what Jude originally intended. Remember his original desire. I wanted to write to you, brothers, beloved in God, kept for Jesus Christ. I wanted to write to you, and I'm paraphrasing, to simply talk together with you about our common salvation. If that had been the book written, and maybe it was, but it's not in God's canon, but if it was, it would have been a delightful and wonderful, encouraging book. He would have gloried in the work of God in Christ in saving him and sinners like him. He would have highlighted the grace and the mercy of God, connected it all to what God has done from the very beginning, to all the promises that he had made, and it would have been uplifting and wonderful to read. But we come to this book. He felt compelled urgently to write this book to warn those who believe that they might stand and contend for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. That, I believe, is the second way that we can glory in what God has done by looking square in the face of wickedness as it's revealed and uncovered and the judgment of the wicked and the unrighteous and to rejoice that God has been merciful to me, to you, in not leaving you in the place where you deserved his damnation. Have not your hearts been stirred as you followed our study, as you listened about these deceitful false teachers, and you've said, I could have been like that, but God redeemed me, he changed me, he turned my heart Have you not called out to God in praise and thanksgiving for delivering you from that judgment which is sure to come? Have you not seen in these false teachers your own selfish desires that God has delivered you from? Your own greed, your own rebellious heart, and wondered and marveled how God could show such mercy to you. How interesting that we can read this book and study it together and be overwhelmed by the picture that God has given to us and say to him, thank you, Father, for saving me from such an end, from such a life, a life of rebellion, of greed, of shame, and delivering me by your mercy and grace from such folly and destruction. You see, Jude is there for us. It's there to uncover, unmask the false teachers, but you can't be disconnected from the book. You have to see yourself as part of the story and say that God has rescued me from it. And that is one of the great joys that we have over and over again, week after week, as we study this book. I want to end with an illustration that really speaks, I think, primarily to our men who will come to the front very soon. It's one you've heard before, so we pastors, as we stand in this pulpit year after year, are bound to repeat our illustrations, aren't we? But I have, as some of you know, a very favorite picture in my office. It is among the favorites I have bought from Reformation art. I'll tell you what it is after I tell you the story. It's about John Calvin and his willingness to stand and to fight against the false teachers of his day. One of the most persistent thorns, one writer says, in Calvin's side were the libertines in Geneva. Now, if you know the word libertine, you know that they're just like these false teachers. They take liberty and pervert the grace of God. They turn it into sensuality. They 
glory in defiling the flesh. That's what these men did in Calvin's day. But here too, his perseverance was triumphant in a remarkable way. In every city in Europe, men kept mistresses in Calvin's day. When Calvin began his ministry in Geneva in 1536 at the age of 27, there was a law that said a man could keep only one mistress. Even after Calvin had been preaching as pastor in St. Peter's Church for over 15 years, that immorality was a plague even in the church. The Libertines boasted in their license. For them, the communion of the saints meant the common possession of goods, houses, bodies, and wives. So they practiced adultery and indulged in sexual promiscuity in the name of Christian freedom. It's right out of Jude. It's right out of Jude. And at the same time, they claimed the right to sit at the Lord's table. After some long discussions among the various councils and gathering of ministers in Geneva, the Libertines were barred from the Lord's table. Barred from the Lord's table. That did not sit well with them. They fought the judgment of the church in every place that they could, insisting that they had always been welcome at the table before, despite their alleged sins, and would not be barred by Calvin or anyone else. And so a battle enraged or waged, and the holiness of the table was clearly in jeopardy. When the day of worship arrived two days later, St. Pierre's Cathedral was unusually crowded, September 3, 1553. All of the libertines swaggered in with their hands placed on the hilts of their swords. They kind of approached worship differently. And took their seats near the Lord's table. Calvin boldly preached his sermon. And after descending from the pulpit, he firmly placed himself behind the Lord's table, refusing to serve any despisers of sacred mysteries. He said to them, these hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off. My life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profane and dishonor the table of my God. These words hit the libertines like a thunderclap, and those who had entered the church so proudly now left it very ashamed of themselves. Calvin went on to think that was the end of his ministry, He went to prepare a sermon for the afternoon. You know, he preached at least twice on the Lord's Day. And as he prepared his sermon, he went to Acts chapter 20, the farewell discourse of Paul to the Ephesian elders, because he thought his time was over. It was not. The Libertines left. They left for the meantime in peace. But this is a picture, isn't it, of contending for the faith. Contending for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. Men, as you prepare to come, are you willing? I doubt you'll ever see someone come with a sword to the table threatening your life. But if it were so, are you willing to take your stand against false teachers of our day with hope and with boldness? Motivated not by greed, nor by envy, nor by a rebellious heart, but motivated for God's glory with a love for his holiness and a commitment to the good and growth of the people that he has called you to serve. I pray and we will pray in just a few moments for you that by his grace alone, you would let us pray.
Father, this account of one of the heroes of our faith, a man faithful in his calling, is a stunning picture of what we are all to be as we seek to defend, contend for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints against ungodly men, ungodly women, ungodly people who creep into the church, who seek to undercut, to pervert the gospel of grace, to turn it into a reason for license to sexual immorality and all kinds of wickedness and evil. We are foolish to believe if there are not such today, even in our own time. And so cause each of us to stand fast and firm by your grace, to contend for the faith in the midst of those whose motivations have been revealed, whose fruit has been seen and evident. And give us grace, especially as we come to this time now, that your blessing would rest upon these men especially as you have called and will soon set them apart unto this holy office, these holy offices, we pray. And we ask it with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.